Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us, this place uh, that we can meet for Sunday school, for fellowship, for worship, uh, the country that you have placed us in, that we have the freedom to do that. Uh, we thank you for your many blessings to us. And in acknowledgement of that, help us to utilize this time well. In Christ's name, amen. So we've been moving the last several weeks, or months, I guess, uh, through the confession of faith. And this morning we're going to pick up chapter 26, which is on page 935 in the back of your hymnals. And before I get into this doctrine, what, what the... Uh, Scripture teaches regarding this doctrine. Can someone read for me Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7? And then I want someone else to read Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through, let's say, 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and then Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Six and seven. So, Paul in Ephesians says that you, the Christian, are raised with Christ and seated with Christ. Does that sound a little weird? (laughs) Do you feel, (laughs) has your experience been that you had a physical resurrection and that you are now seated in heaven with Jesus Christ? That's not kind of how we think of our life very often. So someone else read for me Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized Die again. Death no longer has got dominion over him. For the 
once for all, the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So did you hear what Paul is saying is the reason that you and I should pursue holiness. The the reason that you and I are not to live in sin, the reason that you and I are to pursue holiness, is that we have been buried with Christ, and we have been raised with Christ. And then later he says we are united to Christ. So, Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 6. He uses it, again, in Ephesians chapter 2. And there are other places in the New Testament, but those are, those are two uh, big ones. Where this idea that your Christian life is somehow, in some way, united to Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension... And rain. All of these things, you and I are united to Christ in. So, it's a, it's a point of theology that, that Paul is, is drawing out and that our confession tries to open up for us here in chapter 26. The confession refers to it as the communion of the saints. And, that's the exact same thing that today is meant when we talk about the union with Christ. The communion and the union are two different ways of looking at the exact same thing. But our confession is trying to say, what does it mean when the scripture talks about union with Christ? So, that's what chapter 26 is doing for us. It's, it's opening up this idea of you and I united to Jesus Christ. And not just united to Him. So, so I mean, here's... Jesus Christ is never presented as a moral teacher. Does He have moral teaching? Of course. <laughs> is that who He is? No, there's plenty of guys who have great moral teachings. You follow the words of Confucius, you follow the words of the Buddha, you follow the words of whoever, you're going to have basic morality. Uh, you don't have, you know, in Islam, murder is still wrong. In Christianity, murder is still wrong. In Buddhism, murder is still wrong. Uh, we, we all have these, this basic ethical teaching. And various religions will kind of focus on how do you live the good life. But that's not what Jesus is. Sure. Yeah. No other religion has that perfect truth. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, for instance, in Islam, uh, in the Hadith, uh, you are allowed to marry more than one wife and 
uh, a girl's, uh, in, in some of the hadith, it depends on which sect of Islam you follow, the age of consent is eight years old. Uh, I got a problem with that. <laughs> that just does not, right. Are the same in term, but, but they're all pursuing basic ethics. Uh, it's not 100%. But, but the fundamental difference, uh, between this and others, <clears throat> can you think of any other religion that would say you are united to the deity? Certainly not Islam. Certainly, even even Buddhism or Confucianism uh, or or Hinduism, you're not united to deity. You're seeking nirvana. You're seeking non-existence. Uh, in in these various religions, you have to purify yourself by living life over and over and over again until finally you do it right. And when you do it right, you finally get to pass into nirvana, which is non-existence. Uh, but, but all of these other religions, A, so again, a <laughs> little bit of a tangent, there's only two ways of salvation. Either you're saved by what you do, or you're saved by what someone else did, what someone else does. And only Christianity points to someone else. Every other religion, every religion on the face of the earth, points to what you need to do in order to be at peace with God. Christianity says Christ Jesus is our peace. Christ has made peace with God. And he has reconciled us to God and us to one another. And that's where the confession is hitting on here in chapter 26. What this communion with God and what this communion with one another looks like. And, and how we live this out. So it's taking this, this principle of union with Christ and opening it up for us and saying, what does this mean? So our first section, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him. Now, that fellowship with Christ consists of his graces sufferings Death resurrection and glory. Right now you have fellowship in all of these areas. Now sometimes we might feel like we live our lives kind of here, and maybe on a good day here. <laughs> that this is kind of where we live 
the struggle of what it means to be a man of God, what it means to be a woman of God. Uh, life is unfair. Things get thrown at us that are patently wrong. They're patently evil. We should not be experiencing these things in a perfect world. We experience deep personal betrayals of confidence and trust, uh, betrayals within our own family. We, we experience some really bad, toxic things. And what the scripture teaches us is that in that experience, we are united to Christ in his sufferings and even in his death. But we also are united to Christ in his graces. In, in, uh, so, so for instance, in uh, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus says, uh, when, when the sheep and the goats are coming in, and he says, when I was hungry, uh, you gave me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water to drink. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And the response is, Lord, when did we ever do any of this to you? And what's his answer? Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my servants, you did it unto me. We're united to him in his graces. As we live out the grace of Jesus Christ, we are united to him in in his work. But we also are united to one another. And that's the second half there of that first section. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as to do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outer man. So we are united to one another just as surely as we are united to Christ. You can't have one without the other, normally. There are clearly exceptions. The thief on the cross is the one example that we've got of someone that we absolutely know was not a baptized member of a church (laughs) because he was nailed to a cross at the time. And yet, we absolutely know that he was regenerated. He was born again. Because Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, said to him, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. So we know that this is it's not the church that saves. It's not church membership that saves. But at the same time, you are not supposed to be living out your salvation in isolation. The union involves both a fellowship with Christ and a fellowship with one another. There's, there's both of those things. So you can, you can think of passages in the scripture, uh, such as referring to the church as the bride of Christ. How many brides did Jesus have? One. He's got one bride. He is not a polygamist. I promise you. <laughs> Jesus Christ has one bride. And that one bride is the church. And so if you want to say that you are part of the bride of Christ, 
then you should be in a church. You should have no confidence in saying, I'm a member of the bride of Jesus Christ, but I can't stand churches. The institutional church, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that, that does not fly. That is not the pattern that's given to us in Scripture at all. It's the exact opposite. It's the understanding that to be united to Christ is also to be united to one another. Uh, and and <clears throat> living out our Christian life. Uh, so the second, the second section there, just looking at the time, we may or may not get through this. Uh, the second section, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing of such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things, according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is, this, this last phrase I particularly love. It, um, in, in today's world, with our ease of travel, maybe it feels more real to say our brothers and sisters in China, our brothers and sisters in Eritrea. But even if we can say our brothers and sisters in China, how often do we live that reality in our own communities? Uh, that, that we would look at another Christian and say, this is my brother. This is my sister. Uh, they may have doctrine that's different from me. They may have a different understanding of the mode of baptism. They think that baptism needs to be performed by immersion upon profession of faith. I believe that the scripture teaches that baptism is properly performed uh, uh, to our covenant children and, and that that is the most biblically consistent thing. All of those are, yes, they're important issues. But this person who professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is my brother. They're my sister. And whether that is doctrinal differences, whether it's ethnic differences, uh, I, I am much more closely united to a person who has a completely different skin color and speaks a completely different language from me than I am to my own genetic flesh and blood who do not profess Christ. They are truly a stranger to me. Now, I know them really well. I grew up with them. But they're, they're a stranger to me. This one who professes Jesus Christ is my brother. This one is my sister. And it doesn't matter what their skin color is, it doesn't matter what language they speak in, it doesn't matter if they live in China, Eritrea, or Sterling. Uh, they are my brother, they are my sister. And we are supposed to live out our Christian life in the midst of doing good to one another. Now, the problem with this is that my brother and my sister offend me. Or I offend my brother or my sister. Uh, and when my brother or my sister causes me offense, then because 
I am a typical human being, I will just close up, I won't communicate with them, I'll just maintain distance, or, you know, if it's enough of a problem, I'll just go join another church, or I'll just leave church altogether, because after all, church is full of hypocrites, and they all, uh, you know, they, they, they all are annoying, or, or whatever. Uh, we, we come up with a lot of reasons to easily break that fellowship that we have with our brothers, with our sisters in Christ. Because fellowship requires a lot of dealing with messes. And so, particularly those of you who have brothers and sisters in your family, those of you who are not only children, think about your brothers, think about your sisters. All right, you got them in your mind? Would you say that you know things about your brother, you know things about your sister, that people in general do not know? Would you say that if you wanted to, you could deeply hurt your brother, you could deeply hurt your sister by telling the world at large about some of their messed up chaos. Nobody can betray you like a family member can. The family knows all the mess. <laughs> the family knows. I can put on the smile outside the house, but my kids know me. <laughs> they know my periods of depression. They know my periods of anger. They know my periods of laziness. They know all of the nasty about me. And hey, just fair warning, I do about them too. So, <laughs> uh, but you know, and and certainly in in the spouse relationship, that, that's that's one of the things that's at the heart of of the relationship between the husband and wife is you know the nastiness, you know the fallenness of this husband, you know the fallenness and nastiness of this wife, and you have said, even there, I'm going to stay with you until death. I'm, I'm committed to this, and I'm going to work through this, and, and there's going to be that, that lifelong commitment. So I say that to make this point. We know, and actually I am going to stop here, we know that family is messy. Anybody who doesn't know that family is messy, look at your brother, look at your sister, look at your parents, look at your children, you will see messy. That's guaranteed. You will see messy. Anybody who comes from a family that's got zero mess, I would love to meet. I don't think it exists. I'm pretty confident it doesn't exist because the Bible tells me we're all sinners. Uh, but family is mess. So why should church family be different? Why do we expect the church community to be perfect? Why is it that when our brother, our sister in the church betrays us, doesn't live up to our expectations, says something stupid, 
does something hurtful, why do we say, I'm out of here? That's a question. Why do we do that? False expectation of perfection. False expectation of perfection, I think absolutely. Uh, I think, frankly, one of the things that I'm seeing today in our culture today is social media defining what family is so that my family are the group of people that completely affirm me in everything that I believe and everything that I do. And so family comes and goes. As soon as you no longer affirm me, I, I unfriend you. Uh, and, and so my family is all those people that completely affirm me well, then family just becomes a temporary... We're, we're taking a really sacred word. We're taking a really meaningful term. And we're using it to say Facebook friends. <laughs> you know, which is really shallow and really destroys uh, our concept of, of family and, and the sacrifices that family requires. I agree. Yeah. I, I think, I think when we say, you know what, I'm done with this, we're, we're saying this is not valuable. This is not important to me. This is, you know, in, in other arenas, you know, for instance, a child, uh, for those who are of a certain age, I can see eh, four maybe <laughs> in the room that have had teenage children. You've got to agree that there comes a point in your life where you look at this person and you go, just get out of my house. <laughs> you are obnoxious. You are ungrateful. <laughs> you are demanding. <laughs> you are a jerk. But you're my child. And I am always going to be committed to you. I'm going, I mean, that's just the nature of the thing. When I, when you held your child in your arms for the very first time, you full on loved. That child did not earn your love. And as much as that child might break your heart, you are never going to, to stop loving your child. They're always going to be a part of you. No matter how much they betray you, no matter how much they hurt you, no matter how obnoxious they are as teenagers. You still love them. Uh, and, and I think as parents, we know that. Uh, as church members, not so much. And, and I think that's because we do not have a healthy and robust view of what the scripture teaches about union with Christ and union with one another. Uh, and so that's what we're trying to really hammer down on here in this chapter is, is what does it mean to be united to Christ and united to one another? How do we live that out? So I'll pick up more uh, with that, Lord willing, next week.
That's true. That's very true. You got to. My responsibility is my obedience to God, not that person's obedience to God. And if that person also says their responsibility is their obedience to God and not my obedience to God, then we're going to have a very peaceful coexistence because I'm going to forgive when they mess up and they're going to forgive when I mess up because God tells me to forgive. <laughs> Uh, but our, our focus is, and, and that's, that is how this grows out of this union with Christ. Uh, I'm responsible to live in union with Jesus Christ and with one another. And so is the other person. And so if we're all recognizing our responsibility to live in union with Christ and union with one another, then we're also going to recognize our responsibility to forgive 70 times 7, to, you know, when you see a brother or sister in sin, you who are uh, spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, uh, taking care lest you also fall, uh, all, of these, all of these scriptural principles. But I've run over, let me close there, and let's go into our time of fellowship. Father, we do thank you for this glorious mystery that we are united to Jesus Christ, uh, even as we will spend the rest of eternity marveling at your amazing grace. Lord, help us now to get a small taste of what that means, to live our lives accordingly. In Christ's name, amen.